Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you give me grace as I expound your word to your people. I pray that you give us grace today as we consider the dominance of your Son over demons over all your enemies, over all those who hate you. We thank you for your absolute sovereignty, Lord, and your power manifest through Paul. We thank you for the knowledge that whenever you seek to unseat one of the principalities and powers of darkness, you can do so. It is simply a matter of your will. You are restrained by nothing more than this. I pray for a movement of the Holy Spirit. I pray that he would apply these great truths to us. And Lord, I pray that for those here who still do not know you, who in their hard-heartedness sit here week in and week out and refuse to submit what does not belong to them to their maker instead, I pray that they would today seek refuge in you, knowing that demons are real, Satan is real. And for the Christian, he is an enemy who has his parameters firmly established and who will not be permitted to go beyond them by the King of glory. And for the Christian, we are protected. But there is no protection for the lost. They will be consumed by evil in this life and then they will be cast into hell at the end of it. Pray that you give us grace as we consider these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A 19th century French poet by the name of Charles Baudelaire is credited with that famous quote that I'm sure you have all heard, the greatest trick that the devil ever pulled was to convince the world that he did not exist. Well, with respect to Mr. Baudelaire, the only way that he could have possibly believed that is if he had no real knowledge of the biblical Satan. And perhaps this is because he had no desire to know the devil as he occurs in the pages of Scripture and instead was quite content to conjure up a caricature of him and then respond to that. But whatever the reason for his error, he was wrong, and he was so wrong that his conclusion must be regarded as absurd. 
This is the being whose nature is best expressed in I will be like the Most High from Isaiah 14. And like the Most High, his arch-antitype endeavors to gather unto himself praise. More than anything, he desires this, that his name would be magnified in all the earth. Satan is the greatest narcissist in the universe, and as such, he is most certainly not going to be content with anonymity. However, I will say in Baudelaire's defense and in defense of all those who find that sentiment to have a ring of truth, he and commonly they are citizens of Western civilization. And Western civilization has as its foundation the Bible and Christianity. Therefore, Satan's success in the West has for a very long time depended upon anonymity and the use of obfuscation. But this is not what he wants. This was a necessity in the absence of wide-scale cultural buy-in of overt satanic branding of the kind found in every single nation outside of Western civilization and ancient Israel from time and memorial. Even unbelievers in the West would have historically rejected that sort of thing because of the institutional and cultural influence of our faith. But as Bob Dylan sang, the times, they are a-changin'. As Satan reaps more and more of the harvest that he planted for in previous centuries and generations, he is more and more, dare I say, out of the closet. Case in point, the 2023 Grammys. The only reason I know anything about this is because I stay abreast of current events in the news. That the 2023 Grammys were headlined by a sodomite who dressed like Satan and pretended to engage in the act of sodomy on stage with many, many, many men while he was joined by another performer who was a man who had had a tremendous amount of surgery to make himself look like a woman. Now that's significant enough as it stands because that shows you how far the culture has gone. But adding to the significance of this is the fact that the President of the United States' wife was sitting in attendance and in approval of this while it was happening. And this gentleman has also been invited to the White House, the home of the highest ruler in our land and arguably in the world, to sing on behalf of uh, passage of bills that are pro-LGBTQ+. Plus yada, yada, yada. And this is not nearly the only example of Satan becoming very, very bold and desiring to have his name named. Clothing at Target, you may remember this controversy. The company that did that invoked satanic branding openly. Although I will say I think gay pride parades are probably the best example of this, and that's been going on for a really, really long time want to see a lot of satanic imagery just go there not to mention the activities themselves which are deeply deeply satanic Uh, america and the west are at and headed toward what is historically actually a very familiar place it's not familiar to us but we have been the exception the pagan nations slash empires have been the rule and one of these pagan nations and or empires was ancient rome including mid-first century Macedonia and more narrowly Philippi, where again there is no temple nor synagogue. There is no concept of Yahweh. 
of a Judeo-Christian ethic, and so the devil is quite out in the open. So what we're going to be doing today is looking back into history in our study, which will also unfortunately mean looking forward into our very near future, which is already manifest in the presence, and toward the total demonic deconstruction of our civilization. And that sounds somber, and indeed it is. But because the church has already been where we're headed, we can also be hopeful. We have an example to learn from in Scripture that will teach us how to respond to open Satanism in the same way that they did to the glory of God. And if we do learn these lessons, and if the Lord blesses the application of these, then perhaps once more we can create the conditions that pushed Satan behind the scenes in the West in the first place. In a sense, it would be nice to once more be able to accept the notion that the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was to convince the world that he didn't exist. But before we get to all of that from the text, let me give you some preface. We are, by way of reminder, still in Philippi. We are fresh off of the conversion of a woman named Lydia. Looking ahead, though, what begins in verse 16 is a sequence of events that will remain unbroken until verse 40, which is the end of the chapter. We're going to have cause and effect, cause and effect, cause and effect, all the way until the final effect. But because this is an unbroken chain of events, in order for me to, uh, or if I were to rather isolate the first cause from the last effect, we would lose sight of the greater narrative. At the same time, I also have the challenge that the narrative is so great that I cannot deal with all of it today. So what we will do, how we will handle this, is that we will read all of what remains of the chapter together, verses 16 through 40. Then after that, we will return to verse 16, and we will move only as far as verse 18 today. We will exegete and apply this, and then in the coming weeks, we will move forward in this same way through the text, and hopefully this allows us to deal with individual portions without losing sight of the greater whole. So look again to verse 16 as we begin. Now it happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a servant girl having a spirit of divination met us who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out saying, these men are slaves of the most high God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And she continued doing this for many days. But being greatly annoyed, Paul turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to leave her and it left her at that very moment. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit had left, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, these men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs that are not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans. And the crowd joined together to attack them, and the chief magistrates, tearing their garments off of them, proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. and When they had inf- inflicted them with many wounds, they threw them into prison, commanded the jailer and guard secure them, to secure them, who, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and, sing- and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the jailhouse were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. 
And when the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your house. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his household. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly with his whole household because he had believed in God. Now when day came, the chief magistrates sent their policemen saying, Release those men. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The chief magistrates have sent to release you. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, Having beaten us in public without trial, men who are Romans, they have thrown us into prison. And now they are sending us away secretly? No, indeed. But let them come themselves and bring us out. And the policemen reported these words to the chief magistrates. They were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. And they came and appealed to them. And when they had brought them out, they kept requesting them to leave the city. And when, and they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they saw the brothers, they encouraged them and left. So first point of exegesis for you today is that this girl is the real deal. What I mean is that she really does possess dark gifts of a supernatural kind. Now, I acknowledge, as should we all, that most soothsayers or diviners were not real historically and are not real at present. Most of them are charlatans who pretend to be able to commune with the dead or foretell the future for the sake of uh, filling their wallets or purses, as the case may be. And I think you have an example of one of these hucksters or frauds from 1 Samuel 28. Many first-time readers of the Bible, after they've become Christians, have encountered this passage and not known what to do with it. Did she really uh, accomplish necromancy? Because the story there, as you recall, is uh, King Saul disguising himself, going and seeking knowledge of what will occur in an upcoming battle. He does this through a witch, and uh, she engages in what appear to be the demonic arts and raises Samuel and he appears. In reality, she, by what's written in the text, does not appear to have any knowledge that that was actually going to happen. She appears shocked, if you recall, to actually see him there. And she shouldn't be shocked if this was her regular practice. This should be just another Tuesday. What seems to have occurred there is that God intervened and actually did accomplish a unique supernatural gift and uh, tell Saul that he was, in fact, headed toward his demise. So I believe she was a fraud. In my own experience, uh, I have seen this sort of thing as well. And I forgot to see if this fortune teller is still here, but when we founded this church... I went to absolutely every business on this stretch of Abbey Road and gave them the gospel, all the way from 254 to 57. 
which is a whole lot of businesses, and took me into some strange and interesting places. Hookah Lounge was one. Uh, another one, and I think the most interesting, was the fortune teller. I, I believe she's still down there, although I'll have to check on my way home. So I go in, and she asks me, you know, what I need or, or, or what service I would like. And I was very forthcoming. I said, I have not come here to receive anything from you. I'm a preacher of the gospel, and I have come to give you the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then without breathing or asking permission, I proceeded to do exactly that. Went all the way through, and her response actually was extremely positive. I have to say, she was touched. And she said something to the effect of, I just never would have foreseen that anybody like you would come in and do something like this, to which I responded, I really feel like you should have, though. And I don't think she picked up what I was putting down at all. I think it went right over her head, and we exchanged a few more pleasantries. And I left. That lady, polite as she was, obviously, was a fake. This girl, though, isn't. But to begin with, you know from the text that she is really and truly indwelt by a demon, so you don't need to guess about that in the way that people in our day are left to guess and often make leaps that are unwarranted and perhaps in order to gain some attention for themselves. And for example, there are a lot of street preachers and street evangelists that make spurious claims about being encountered by a demoniac in order seemingly to use this as clickbait to get people to watch their videos and perhaps contribute to their ministries financially. So watch demoniac, de, uh, demoniac get destroyed, that sort of thing. They don't know, though, that that's the case. Maybe that person's just a jerk. Maybe they're a bad person. Maybe they edited the first part of the video where the preacher behaved like a jerk, and so the person is now responding to them accordingly. You don't know if that's authentic, but this definitely is. And you know that based upon the thus saith the Lord authority that she is, in fact, demon-possessed. And demons obviously commune with other demons. They speak to one another. They communicate. And the fact that they can and do have a dark fellowship with each other is indicated in many ways, but sufficiently so in that they can and do at times cohabitate the same host. For example, our name is Legion, for we are many. And cohabitation obviously cannot happen without a high degree of cooperation, a higher degree, in fact, than many siblings exhibit when they occupy the same bedroom, not that I have any experience with that as a father. But if you assume that being estranged as they are from the benevolent presence of their creator, they might just simply then gnaw unrelentingly at each other, that is not the case. They are, it would seem, very capable of tremendous unity, being bound together by the common pursuit of gnawing at their creator's image bearers instead. And the intimate knowledge that demons have and share amongst themselves and through their human hosts pertaining to human affairs stems from voyeurism of us. Pretty obviously, they are unfettered by space and matter as immaterial beings. And so they're not excluded from closed-door meetings that are held by we humans, which means that when it comes to the best-laid plans of mice and men, they may not have heard them all, but they have heard a lot of them, especially from persons of interest, which they would naturally focus on and allocate the most man-hours to, surveilling, or you might say demon-hours. And these would include politicians, world leaders, businessmen, movers and shakers, what have you. 
And this woman is one of their true mediums, and through her, the substance of such closed-door meetings is exactly what is being communicated to very interested third parties who are paying a lot of money to hear these things. And her handlers and really owners, as, as a part of this, are also making a lot of money from her. I do want to say, before we accidentally ascribe to demons any of the unique attributes of God, she is not actually foretelling the future in the strictest sense, because she is not able to foresee the future. That is the belief of those who are paying her, and they're paying her to do just that, but there's only one being in the universe who can actually, certainly, tell what is going to happen in the future because he is sovereignly ruling and reigning over everything that does occur. However, your predictions of what will happen will be very, very accurate if you know the unpublicized intentions of powerful men and women before they act on those intentions because you possess this sort of secret demonic knowledge because, again, you were privy to conversations that you were not known to be because you were not seen. Now, note also that the English spirit of divination is in the Greek literally a python spirit. That's the name of this sermon if you looked in the bulletin. Now, you might naturally want to associate her then with Satan, who is the great serpent according to Scripture, but that is not actually the primary reference here. The serpent whose spirit she is said to possess is that of Apollo. And the reason for this association is that according to Greek mythology, Apollo is the god who killed the uh, oracular snake that guarded the temple at Delphi. And as a result of this fictitious account, he became synonymous with the sign of the serpent. He was also considered the god of prophecy. And that is, in fact, the primary reason why people worshipped him. It was said that because Apollo had connections to the underworld, he knew what would happen in the future, what would result from a certain course of action. So he could direct you to go one way or another. And he would render this information to his faithful worshipers. As you see here, not all of that is myth. His primary temple was in a place called Didyma, which is at present a part of Turkey. But the ruins to this temple actually still remain. This is a hundred miles away from ancient Ephesus to give you some idea. But if you were to make this long journey, you would take with you a sheep, and the sheep would be given in sacrifice to the priests, but the priest would take the bladder from the sheep and in some way, somehow, he would read the bladder. And if it said yes, then you were granted a special hearing. And if that happened, the priest would take your petition behind the doors of basically a satanic holy of holies, a place that was inaccessible to common people. And in this place, there was a young woman suspended over a pit supposedly accessing information from the underworld that was rising from it. In reality, though, she was communing with demons. But this girl would be breathing in fumes from an ancient compound similar to modern glue that was burning beneath her. And she would answer the worshiper's query as dictated by the priest, and the priest would jot down her response, and he would set it to prose and poetry, and then he would walk all the way back to the person who had paid for this service, probably a great distance and with much pomp and circumstance, read aloud the pronouncement. Well, this girl in Acts 16 is that. She just is that on a local level for the Philippians. 
who had, for the most part, no idea that while Apollo was nothing, either Satan or another very powerful demon who wore him as a mask was very, very real. Although I also don't think it's implausible that a lot of these names of ancient Greek gods, lowercase g, are actually just the chosen and proper names of demons. And these people further do not know that the only reason that Satan was giving them glimpses of a likely future was to convince them of his deity, thereby stealing their futures forever. And the same can be said of people in our day. They play with things they don't understand and they deny glaring spiritual realities because to acknowledge the devil also requires that you acknowledge God. And yet the state of our culture cannot be explained without the existence of Satan and his demons either in dwelling souls or as I believe occurs in the most part, influencing them. For example, what sort of people actually do murder their own offspring in contradiction to basic human instinct? We don't agree with a lot with the evolutionists, but we do at least agree that by our nature we seek the success and endurance of our species along with every other species on planet Earth. So there is no natural explanation as to why you would murder your offspring, but there is a supernatural one. Might do that sort of thing in offering to a demon named Moloch for the promise of receiving financial prosperity and good weather. Does that sound familiar to you? Or what would cause a person to mutilate themselves? Again, speaking even naturally, people would seek their own well-being. That's why Jesus' teaching about loving your neighbor as you love yourself makes rational sense because people typically do love themselves. But the prophets of Baal didn't. They mutilated themselves. The demoniac didn't from Mark 5. He cut himself. That's not natural. It's satanic. It's demonic. Or last example... Think about how hard people in our society are working in order to deny the natural order even in their appearance. I was at Walmart yesterday, and I told Lydia this. I said, I find myself wishing for the good old days. Like, remember back in the 90s where a sodomite just wanted to look as effeminate as he can? Now you have this weird mismatch. You don't get to have the burly beard and prance around. You can't have both of those things. And I saw that twice in two employees of Walmart. It is just to the max denying the created order. That is satanic also. While all this and more is evident, still we are told that our obviously pagan, Satan-worshipping contemporaries are scientific and not superstitious. No, in truth, they're far more superstitious than the people in the Apostles' day. See, the Greco-Romans, they weren't as new to this dabbling in the demonic as we are. They'd been doing this for a long time at this point, so they often knew the difference between a fraud and the genuine article. And this is demonstrated actually in a couple of ancient works. I'll name only one. Alexander, the false prophet, almost contemporary to the time of the apostles, written by a man named Lucian of Samosota. It is what it sounds like. It is a warning against false prophets. In that instance, one who claimed to represent Asclepius but just went around lining his pockets by pretending to tell people what was going to happen in the future when he had no actual ability to do so. So no, they did not lack discernment, actually. They were not just silly people. Very often, 
They were, in fact, far more serious than people in our day who call herds of cows because some charlatan prophet told them that if they do, it'll appease the sun god. What does it matter if you appease the sun god if you don't have any food to eat? In both instances, you would die. Now, they were very serious people who had just lost their cash cow and are so angry about it that they are willing to take Paul to court over it which we saw in our reading earlier, but we'll analyze more thoroughly in the weeks to come. But although these people do not know who is really behind this power in her, they certainly do know that the power behind her is real, and on that they are absolutely right. As one pagan priest of the day said of girls just like this one, they are ventriloquists uttering words beyond their control. That's exactly what was happening. And the reality of this kind of thing as a category is something that you and I must accept. There are things in this world that are not of this world, and these are not just good things. I to give ear to and accept every rumor of demon possession makes you a fool, as well as it does demonstrate that you probably have an unhealthy interest in Satan and his demons. But make no mistake, friend, this is real. There are at present in our culture souls entrapped by demons. And whether you may or whether or not you have entertained angels without knowing it, odds are pretty good you have at least passed on the street an incarnate demon on your way to and fro. On the present culture, these have been classified as what? Mentally ill. And they are almost certainly heavily drugged, not off of burning glue in their case, but off of hardcore pharmaceuticals because that's what we do with every undesirable quality that we find in people. Find a way to classify it, whether the classifications are real, and in this instance, they aren't. Whether you're talking about a demon-possessed person or somebody who's influenced by a demon, the problem is spiritual. In many of these instances, though, I do believe that we just have heavily medicated demoniacs. And while hatred of Christ, his people, and his word is not unique to those actually possessed it does in every instance mark them in the same way that it did with this girl in our text. And to see this, look to verse 17 again and into the first part of verse 18. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are slaves of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And she continued doing this for many days. Now, there's a great debate amongst commentators over whether or not this girl is actually telling the truth. Because you read that as an English-reading Westerner, and you think she is telling the truth. There are even commentators who note that she is using language that at least as it occurs in English is consistent with Old Testament references to God. Problem is she's not speaking in English and those who are hearing her are not Westerners. These are all godless pagans. Again, they have no background in Judeo-Christianity whatsoever. Remind you of the fact that there's no synagogue here and Judaism is considered to be a fringe religious cult. Ergo, the ladies are forced to meet outside of the city gates in the open air, given no quarter within the city. They are considered to be illegitimate in every way as a philosophy and religion. So you don't need to know beyond just what's written in Acts 16 that whoever the Most High God is, he is certainly not Yahweh. He obviously cannot be, considering that they've never heard of Yahweh, and the one that's now trying to tell them about him is being drowned out by a demon who is currently wearing a human girl. 
Furthermore, the term used here for most high God is hypsistus, which was used in the Hellenistic period for the God of the Bible, to be fair, but has also been discovered on the inscriptions of many pagan gods from many different pagan cults by archaeologists all over ancient Asia Minor. So unlike Yahweh, this term is by its nature generic, and therefore its interpretation is subject to the context, which again is definitely not Judeo-Christian. So then the question becomes, who then is the Most High God? The answer is, I don't know. But I'll give you my top three guesses. Okay? My least favorite, but I think still plausible, is that this is Zeus, who's already been referenced once in this book. He was called the King of the Gods. Barnabas, if you recall, was mistaken for being him earlier. So, maybe him. My Second favorite option, though, is that this was actually a different God depending upon the hearer individually. They had patron gods, okay, and they would choose from the pantheon of gods based upon what their most pressing need was. So if a woman's womb was barren and she wanted a child, she would choose a God, S, in that instance, accordingly. If you wanted financial prosperity, you'd choose on that basis. If you wanted to know the future, you would probably choose Apollo. And that being said, he is my number one favorite option for this. This young girl is a very well-known oracle in that region. And so the people hearing her, knowing who she is, would naturally believe that she is referring to Apollo. As being said, the way of salvation that she's supposedly promoting on behalf of Paul means something completely different too. And this, by the way, is generally true. When different people speak of salvation, you shouldn't impose your understanding of this subject as a Christian onto what they are saying. They're not speaking as you speak. Your understanding of salvation depends upon what you think you need to be saved from and who you think it is that does the saving. And in the ancient world, salvation to the Jews was political emancipation. You see that in the Gospels. But to the Gentiles, it was all temporal because they had no real concept of the eternal. They functionally lived by the creed carpe diem, seize the day. She is, therefore, speaking of wealth and power and sex and deliverance from the trials of life, etc., etc., etc. She's not talking about salvation in Christ. As with all of this understood, her validation of Paul is not designed to align her with him, but the other way around. She is the oracle of Apollo, and she is known to be that. He is probably then being cast by her as one of Apollo's priests. So she is attempting then to force upon him exactly the kind of relationship that he forbids in 2 Corinthians 6.14-16 through that we looked at not that long ago. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Again, an ancient name for Satan. Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has a sanctuary of God with idols? For we are a sanctuary of the living God. According to verse 18, she not only did this, she kept doing it. She continued doing it. For many days, misrepresenting Paul's ministry and God. At this point, I want to pause, and we'll get to Paul's response. 
But I want to consider with you the fact that this demon is not dumb. Okay, that has become very, very apparent. His goal, obviously, is to discredit and distract from Paul's gospel. And he is accomplishing this quite well in uh, several ways. First, I've already noted, he's aligning Paul with pagan deities, most probably Apollo. Second, though, his mouthpiece flesh sack is literally drowning Paul out. I think you can infer from what's written that she's probably not whispering this. Okay, she's yelling it. She is following him. He is in the middle of explaining critical elements of salvation, and he is being interrupted by an obnoxious, demon-possessed girl who is aligning him with some false deity. He is unable to successfully communicate the gospel, and because the gospel is communicated and has to be in order to be received, that creates a real problem, doesn't it? Third, and I think this is really clever, as far as anybody can see, he is a she. They're not seeing the demon, they're just seeing her. And from previous research, I can tell you that oracles of Apollo were always attractive, young, virgin females. And you know what attractive, young, virgin females are? They're very sympathetic. So if he drops the hammer on her, and no less for apparently agreeing with him, in light of the fact that she's also regarded as very credible as a mouthpiece of the gods, what kind of a man does that make him look like? This is slander bait if there ever was. And before we get to Paul's response to this sticky situation, let me also ask you, you who regularly give the gospel as Christians, which I hope is all of you, have you ever had something like this happen to you? Ever had somebody do this to you? I've had exactly this sort of a scenario occur. I've had hecklers of all different stripes, but I have had this person who is perhaps stoned, perhaps drunk, validate me seemingly, but do so very, very loudly. And the first time you just sort of go, okay, thank you. And then you start to try to communicate the gospel and they do it again right in the middle of your sentence. And then, if it's me, they become the person most directly being given the gospel and then everybody else can hear me do that. That's the way that I typically deal with that situation. I've had that occur. Because people do not, or rather demon-possessed or demon-influenced people do not want the gospel to be given. By the way, this also happens in church, doesn't it? Whether you've had that experience on the street or not, you've certainly observed it as, as it happens here. You notice that certain people tend to always interrupt the preaching of the gospel with their behavior. That is demonic. We've had many people pass through this church who have done that and who in the final analysis have really never been anything more than satanic distractions from the giving of the gospel. And like Paul, I have learned to become much less tolerant of this as time has gone by. Note that he is, in verse 18, greatly annoyed. I don't think actually that that's the best way to phrase that in 21st century colloquial English. The sense of what's being felt by him is more like deep grief or great vexation. He is being slandered at present as being a pagan priest, so probably a little bit more than annoyed. And so how does he respond then? Verse 18, 
Paul turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to leave her, and it left at that very moment. So Paul's response to the demon is to remove him from the equation entirely and thus set this young girl free. And so to go back to last week's lesson, I guess that thread of God-loving women continues in Acts 16 because she is suddenly and completely emancipated. And as I thought about what it must be to be delivered from a demon, I recognize that I really cannot imagine this. I mean, when we speak about depression, we liken it to being made prisoners of our own minds, and that's appropriate because it does feel like that. But this doesn't feel like that. This is that. This woman has truly been made a passive onlooker in her own life. She is a paralytic, only instead of being incapacitated, her members are being moved, but not by her, by a demon. The same is true of her mouth. Simply put, she has no agency. You might say she has no free will. And as I use that term, you might feel that there is a Calvinist digression coming. And if you are sensing that, you are perceiving correctly. Indeed, there is. Suffer me this, I ask you. Let me give you a thought here. If you are an Arminian, and as such, your highest ideal and most inviolable principle is libertarian free will, and you shout from the rooftops, God would never violate our free will and the Holy Spirit is a gentleman and all of that stuff, then I guess I would ask you on the basis of what we're considering now, why is it that he lets demons violate free will? Isn't that him as the prime mover also violating their free will since he has control over them? Only apparently to evil effect and never to good? Further, wouldn't this sort of be granting Satan greater power than God possesses? Curious and curiouser. However, of course, God doesn't actually violate free will because no fallen person has it in order for him to be able to violate it. God is the one who actually takes the will that is bound to Satan and instead binds it to himself. And that person who has now had their will freed by and unto their creator uses it to worship him. Getting back to this poor imprisoned woman, the text does not tell us how long she has been a passenger in her own ship, but it does tell us that now she is free. And immediately so, no delay. Again, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to leave her, and it, the demon, left at that very moment. By the way, you know what else left at that very moment? And this steals from next week's sermon a little bit, but uh, without this point, I think we're rudderless. This is where we're headed. Look back to verse 16. A servant girl having a spirit of divination met us who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling. Yeah, she's not bringing a much profit anymore. That is all gone. When the demon goes away, so does the denarii or whatever denomination of money they used in that particular area. And this, by the way, is going to cause a violent reaction, which we will start to consider next week. But to wrap this lesson up, let me ask you a question that I would be shocked if none of you were asking and if this wasn't coming in the Q&A. What do we do with demoniacs today? If we acknowledge, as I have, that they still exist, what do we do with them? Do we have, as the Roman Catholics purport to have, uh, exorcisms? Do we have a category of priest, or in our case, pastor, 
that performs these? The answer to that is no. We are also, though, not left without recourse as far as this goes. If somebody came to me and they were convinced that a person was demon-possessed, I would absolutely go. And I would absolutely go in order to make the effort to see that demon cast out. But in our day, that is done through the preaching of the gospel. Okay, there is no special ministry. What I will also acknowledge with you and what you should understand is that when Christ's kingly reign is inaugurated, there is an outpouring of demonic activity unlike anything the world has ever seen. You go through the Old Testament, you see hints of it. You certainly see it occurring. You see Satan inciting David to take the census, for example. You see the prince of Persia in the book of Daniel. You see demons, you see demonic activity, but you don't see it anywhere on the scale that it occurs after, again, the inauguration of Christ as king because there is an escalation and Satan does that in response to him and this continues on into the apostolic era. So we are not seeing possession on the same level as it was seen there and in the same numbers, but it does still occur and as it occurs, I will respond to it by preaching the gospel, and then it is left to the God who is sovereign to drive that demon out through the light of the gospel and then also convert them if he so chooses. That is the response that we are to take in case you were wondering. Let me end with one final question, and I'm going to ask it first to believers, and then I will ask the same to unbelievers. The question is this, Christian, Are you afraid of demons and Satan? Good, because you shouldn't be. I've likened him many times to a dog on a leash. I alluded to that earlier. He must ask permission. He is entirely constrained by your God. And he can do nothing to you that exists outside of the purview of all things working together for your good. So if it is happening to you, even though it may be happening through an intermediary agent, man or angel, fallen even, it is for your good and the Lord will carry you through that. You should not fear that. And you should not have some excessive fascination with them. Christ has conquered them and they await their doom ultimately. Now I ask the same question to you who are unbelievers. Are you afraid of demons and Satan? Oh, I hope so. Oh, I hope so. Because there is no Christ that stands between you and them. And to say that you are a child of Satan does not ascribe to that relationship any kind of paternal love. You need to understand that. You are a bastard to him. He will scrape you off of his boot right into hell after he is done with you. What exactly do you think was the quality of life of these prophetesses? They are stoned and they are abused and then they are flushed down the toilet and then another one is put in their position. It is the same always. Satan does not love you. He uses you. That is it. The children of the devil are nothing more in this life to him than instruments. And he, in fact, abhors you because you bear the image still of the God that he most hates. You had better be afraid. You had better understand that these forces, they are real. And they are not for your good. 
And if you are outside of Christ, then you are inside of this, the kingdom of Satan. Period. And there is only one refuge. And it is the Lord Jesus. You know, we will be opposed by the devil. And as you'll see here soon, that can come with imprisonment. But when we're put in prison, we'll sing the praises of our God because you can't put chains on a Christian soul. You, though, you are owned by the devil to be abused by him and to in the end be cast into hell as a result of having been his follower. But it need not be that way. Turn to Christ, who has conquered the rage of the devil and has swallowed the wrath of God on behalf of his people, and that can be for you too. Trust the righteousness of Jesus today and the sufficiency of his death on your behalf. And then demons will become what they are for us, which is defeated foes brought to heal by our King. And I pray that you will. Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you for your word, for the testimony of your people. And we thank you that Satan is a defeated foe. And we thank you that that's clearly manifest in this account. By the power of your name, Lord, you drove that demon right out immediately. Without asking permission, you are the stronger man who entered his house, bound him, and then took everything that belonged to him. And we praise you and thank you that this is true. In Jesus' name, Father, amen. Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you.